You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. So uh, we are about to set a new, or start a new set of sermons called Gospel Doctrine plus Gospel Culture, or Gospel Doctrine and Gospel Culture. And I want to say a couple of things about it, and then we're going to j- jump into it. Um, and the first thing that I just want to preface everything with is I owe a lot of credit to a guy named Ray Ortland. Uh, back in uh, late spring, early summer, uh, these ideas for this set of sermons were resonating in me, and then I came across this little green book called Gospel by Ray Ortland that really just gave great vocabulary to so much of what I was feeling in that moment. And so I am deeply indebted throughout this set of sermons to this man, Ray Ortland. So I want to give credit to where credit is due, and at the same time, I also want to commend this book to you to buy. It's out on the resource table. I think it would be a great little companion book to read along with this set of sermons. And so uh, I would encourage you to pick that up, put that on your reading list, and over the next month, um, I think it would be a great read for you, maybe in the month of November, to grab that and to think through these things with us together as we kind of journey down this road. Okay, so uh, new set of sermons, gospel doctrine and gospel culture. It's going to take us to the end of the year, and this is my one hope today. I want to lay kind of the groundwork for this so that in the upcoming weeks, we can kind of take off and uh, look through the various angles that we want to try to address So uh, let me start with some words from a friend, J.I. Packer, great theologian, author. Here's what he says. He says, it seems beyond question that we believers do not think often enough or hard enough about the, and just fill in the blank with the things you would put there. I would naturally think doctrine. And I think there is, that can be true for some places, but look at what he says. It seems beyond question that we believers do not think often enough or hard enough about the culture of our congregations, about the culture, about what's happening here, the, the ethos, the vibe, the feel, the functional realities of how life plays out among our church family. We don't think enough about the culture of our congregations. Culture, a word borrowed from sociology, means the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions held in common. A church's culture should be orthopraxy. That's our behavior. That's all of the outward kind of manifestations of how we follow Jesus. It should be orthopraxy expressing orthodoxy, doctrine. So it should be our behavior that is flowing from and expressing our doctrine, our beliefs, what we hold so dear. He goes on to say, it should look like self-giving love for, other, for others that in turn reflects the sacrificial love for us of Jesus Christ and our Savior and our Lord. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that we don't spend enough time thinking about how does our doctrine, how should that, these precious things that we hold so dear, how should they interact with and affect our culture? How, how our church plays out the, the vibe and the feel and the functional realities of our church family. So let's just take a step back and let's talk for a second about our gospel doctrine. We love the gospel around here, don't we? It is great news for you. It's great news for me. It's great news for our world who really needs good news. It's great news for all of us. It's such good news. I love how William Tyndale, um, Bible translator, he said it this way. It's such good news that it makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. That is the sort of great news that you and I get to celebrate week in, week out. This is gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine is there is an all-out, absolute, holy God. And that holy God has looked upon sinful men and women like you and I, rebels like you and I, who have been caught in our sin. And rather than crushing us in our sin, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live for us, to die for us, and to be risen from the dead. All for us. 2,000 years ago on this fateful Friday, Jesus stood in our place. And all the wrath that was ours, that we had deserved, that we have stored up for us, all of that wrath came crashing down on him, crushing him pulverizing him, dismantling him in that moment. This is the good news of the gospel, that in that, now all of us that come to God with the empty hands of faith, not with a lot of things in our hands, not with our good behavior in our hands, not with the last good work we did in our hands, but with the empty hands of faith, knowing that the only thing we bring to God is our sin. We come with the empty hands of faith. Here's the great news of the gospel. Because of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, we are brought into the family of God. 
We are rejoiced in by God. God forever, for all eternity, becomes ours and is irrevocably for us for the rest of eternity. This is the great news of the gospel. This is gospel doctrine on display week in, week out that we get to celebrate. This is why, it's such good news, this is why William Tyndale would say, it makes a man's heart joyful and happy. It makes them leap for joy. It is news that is that great. And can I just give you permission? That news should make you really happy. It should make you really joyful. That news should be celebrated by you. I mean, I, I feel like sometimes we just need to be reminded that for all of those in Christ who have come with the empty hands of faith, thrown their life on Jesus, we no longer have judgment and condemnation and hell waiting for us. We now have God waiting for us, the welcome of God waiting for us, no condemnation, the enjoyment of God for all eternity. That's really good news, isn't it? This is gospel doctrine. Now here's the crux of this set of sermons. That gospel doctrine should translate into a gospel culture. These two things should be held together. This beautiful, precious doctrine that we believe here, it should translate into a culture that reflects these things, that shows these things, that puts these things on display. Our culture should adorn and beautify this great, precious message that we have. This is gospel culture. That a, that a you know, a doctrine of grace, this is gospel, should create a culture of grace. This is what we're trying to say. This is what the Bible over and over is trying to tell us. This is what a church is. A church is a, church, is a culture of grace. It's a culture that has deeply experienced grace, and now that grace is beginning to ooze out of us into one another and into the world. This is what a church is. So this doctrine of grace should be producing a culture of grace. The doctrine of the gospel goes like this. Unspeakably great things happen to unspeakably bad people. That's the gospel. And our church culture should reflect that. That we now become a culture where unspeakably great things are happening to unspeakably bad people. This is the sort of culture that we're going for. This is, this is the ethos and the feel that our church family needs to have to adorn and beautify this great message that we have. Gospel doctrine is that in Jesus, although we are rebels and sinful and nasty and dirty, in Jesus there is hope and forgiveness and patience and grace. And that should therefore create a culture called the church where that grace and that mercy and that patience and that long suffering, all of those things are on display for the world to see and experience. Gospel doctrine should create a gospel culture in a place. Now, here is the problem. The problem is, it is very easy for a church to hold really tightly to gospel doctrine and all the while not have gospel culture. Now, hear that. It is very easy for a church to hold tightly to gospel doctrine while the gospel culture that it, that doctrine should produce has somewhere along the way slipped out of their hand where they no longer have it. So in other words, we can't assume that because we hold tight to a gospel doctrine that we have a gospel culture. We need to ask questions about that. We need to consider that. Hence the purpose of this set of sermons. It's just giving us space to think about these things. Does our culture reflect our doctrine? Does the ethos and vibe and the realities of how we're relating to one another, is it shedding light on that we really do believe a beautiful gospel? Are these two things connected? And if you need a case in point for how these two things can be disconnected in the church, think about um, Revelation chapter 3, the church in Laodicea. Do you remember this church? There's good things about them, but when Jesus comes and he is calling this church to account, do you remember how Jesus says this in Revelation 3.15? He looks at them and says, um, church in Laodicea, here's the thing. I know your works. Now that's a terrifying thing to think about, isn't it? See, when, when God comes and he's addressing this church, he's not just addressing their doctrine. He is also addressing them at the level of culture. I know your works. I know what your church is like. I know what it feels like, what it's communicating in its lifestyle. I know not, not only the doctrine, I know that, but I also know your works. I know the culture of your place. He goes on to clarify. Here's part of their culture. You're neither hot nor cold. You're apathetic. You're not zealous. These things, this gospel doctrine should be creating a people who have a deep and abiding zeal for the Lord, but you are apathetic. There's no zeal in you. What should be beautiful and wondrous to you has now kind of dried up and shriveled up. 
It's, it's no longer beautiful. This is part of their, their cultural problem in Laodicea. But he goes on in Revelation 3.17 to, to continue to address this culture. And he says this about them. When you think about yourself, this is what you say. You say that, that we're rich, that we have prospered, that we don't need a thing here in Laodicea. We have got everything we need. We have done this here. But, but Jesus looks at them and says, but you, you don't realize that, that you're, you're wretched, you're, pity, you're pitiable. You're poor, you're blind, you're naked. This is what you really are. See, the problem with the church in Laodicea was not their doctrine. It wasn't what they believed, you know, confessionally. It's what they had become personally. The culture of their church had shifted. It no longer reflected the doctrine that they held so dear. And so that's a wake-up call for us, that just because we hold a doctrine doesn't mean that we're gonna have the culture. So we've gotta think about this. We've gotta ask questions about this. We've gotta pursue this. We've gotta enjoy this. We've gotta think about these sort of things. Because here's the thing. We really want both and. We want gospel doctrine and we want a gospel culture. We need that, don't we? We need that here. The world needs more churches that have gospel doctrine in one hand and a great gospel culture in the other one. Listen to Francis Schaeffer describe this. He says it this way. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, the final problem is not to prove men wrong, but to win them back to Christ. Now, that's a good thing to just know. Our, our job as a Christian is not to debate people to death to make sure they know they're wrong. That's not the point. Our point is we actually want them to love Jesus. That's the, we actually want them reconciled to God. This is what we're doing in our area. This is why God has our church here. We, want, we actually want men and women in your neighborhood, your friends, your workplace to have a deep, abiding, growing love for God in them. That's what we want. He goes on to say, if that's what we want, therefore, the only ultimately successful apologetic is this. Now, he's going to list three things here. If we, if we want to do this well, if we want to win people back to Christ, here's what we've got to have. First, a clear intellectual statement of what is wrong with the false doctrine plus a clear intellectual return to the proper scriptural emphasis in all of its vitality and in its relation to the total Christian faith. In other words, this is gospel doctrine. If we want to be compelling to people in our area, if we want people won back to Jesus, we have to give them the truth about what's wrong and the truth about what is right and all that is right in Jesus. We've got to have that doctrine. We can never let go of gospel doctrine. Amen? We've got to have gospel doctrine. But here's what he's about to say. Gospel doctrine by itself is not enough to win people to Jesus. That there's something else that God gifts people with to win them back. And here it is. We need this gospel doctrine plus a demonstration in the life that this correct and vital scriptural emphasis, this gospel doctrine, that it actually meets the genuine needs and aspirations of men in a way that Satan's counterfeits do not. You see what he's saying? He's saying if we want to be a powerful church in this area, we need beautiful, precious, clear gospel doctrine. But we also need a beautiful, precious, and clear gospel culture. And when those things come together, people not only hear the good news of Jesus declared from our lips, but they see it demonstrated in our lives. They see that the deepest longings and aspirations of their heart are coming true for people. That the kingdom of God can be like that. See, what the church is meant to be is a gospel culture that is giving a foretaste to this world of what life in the kingdom of God can be like and what life in the kingdom of God will be like when Jesus returns for his bride. See, the church is meant to be that sort of a culture that with our lips we're declaring the beautiful message of the gospel and with our lives we are adorning that message showing that it actually gives the deepest want of our heart. It actually satisfies us on that sort of a deep level. Now, when you think about culture, let's just nail down what, what is culture. It's kind of a, a big, complex sort of a thing. But I think just to simplify it, J.I. Packer, I, I think he says it in a helpful way, that it's the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions held in common. In other words, it's our public behavior. It's the way we're expressing what we really believe down deep. This is culture. So doctrine is, is down here deep what we believe. Culture is how that stuff comes out and shows itself. Uh, another way that um, you know, I think is, is helpful to think about it, this was clarifying for me, is culture is what most people do most of the time. 
So when we're talking about our gospel culture here, we're talking about is our culture, what most people do most of the time with their money, how, how generous we are in humility, in all of in transparency and authenticity, what most people do most of the time is it reflecting our gospel doctrine. We can't assume that it does. We've got to ask questions about is our doctrine and our culture matching? And let me say this again. We want both and. The test of a gospel-centered church is your doctrine on paper and your culture in practice. That's the test. Gospel on paper, doctrine on paper, gospel culture on practice. And here is what, this is the good news. This is what history shows us. The last 2,000 years of church history show us when gospel doctrine and gospel culture are together, the church becomes a very powerful thing. It actually becomes this means for great light and pushing back darkness in our area. So with that in mind, we're going to go to Galatians 2, 11 through 16. I just want to untie a couple of things just to start to build the framework for where we're going to be going over the next um, couple of months. Starting in verse 11, it says this. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews. Talking about he and Peter. Peter, we're both in this. We're both Jews by birth and not Gentiles. Yet we, Peter, you and me, we both know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So let me just divide this text up into two broad categories. We're going to look at the doctrine of it and the culture of it. The gospel doctrine, then the gospel culture. So let's start with the gospel doctrine. This is verses 15 and 16. In 15 and 16, we are seeing a summary of gospel doctrine. Here it is. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Me and you, Peter, this is us. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here is the summation of those two verses. It'll be on the screen for you. Justification is the theme of the verses. You see it used three times in two verses. This is the theme he is unpacking. Justification. How are we justified, made right, reconciled to God? Here is how we are justified. This is what Paul is bringing clarity to. Justification is by grace alone. In other words, it's not by your works. It's not by what you bring to the table. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is how we are made right with God. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is justification. This is how we're reconciled. This is how we're brought back in. So let's just unpack this. Justification goes like this. Justification starts with the awareness that we have thrown the first punch at God, that we have rebelled against God, that we have been disobedient, that we have sinned against God, that we don't even like God at the core of our being. It starts there and that we have been caught red-handed by God in our sin and rebellion. We have been drugged into his courtroom, and we are now standing trial before God the judge, and he is about to slam the gavel down, delivering our sentence. We are red-handed, guilty in our sin, but rather than slamming the gavel down, God meets us with mercy and grace. He sends his son Jesus to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died, risen from the dead on the third day. And in essence, Jesus, with his life, death, and resurrection, in that courtroom of God's justice, stands beside us and says to God the Father, I will take all of their sin on me. You put all of that wrath that you have stored up, you take all of that and you put that on me and you credit all of my righteousness, my perfect life. You take all of that and you give that to them. 
And in light of that, when we come now with the empty hands of faith to God, not bringing our behavior, our all, you know, our self-justification, when we lay all that down and come with the empty hands of faith, the good news of justification is now we measure up and we are right with God. We are reconciled. We are brought into the family. The deep longings in our heart for acceptance and the welcome of God are now met because of the perfect work of Jesus. This is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's how we're reconciled. It's how we're brought into the family of God. It's how one day when we stand before God, we know we're going to be okay. That's justification. Now, let's take a moment here. I always, I think moments like this are good because if we're not careful when we read the Bible in a passage like, um, you know, Galatians 2, 15 and 16, if we're not careful, we're going to convince ourselves that the Bible is asking and answering questions that people just don't ask. I mean, seriously, who is asking the question about justification? I mean, who is that? You don't walk up to your neighbor and the guy asks you, hey, I was just thinking about justification. So if we're not careful, we're going to think that these are abstract questions that people don't ask. But here's the thing. Questions about justification are, are human. They're universal questions. Everyone's asking these questions. The Bible is asking questions that you're asking, that I'm asking, that the world is asking, and it's giving answer to those questions. See, everyone is asking justification questions. You brought justification questions into this room with you this morning. You take them home with you today. You're going to take them to work with you tomorrow. We all have justification questions hanging out in our back pocket, and they're really, really, really hard to get away from. So let me just tease a few of these out. Justification questions sound like this. Am I really okay? I mean, like, seriously, deep down, am I really Am I really okay? Do I measure up here? Have I like met the bar? Like wherever that bar is, have I, have I reached that bar? You know, I was thinking about this yesterday that it's interesting to me how many times I have sat across from men, grown men, and in just a moment of honesty, they have looked at me through tears and said something like this. I have waited my entire life to hear my dad say that he's proud of me. That's a justification question. That's the question of, am I all right? Do I measure up? Do I meet the standard? Now, behind those questions that are all horizontal in nature is the mega question, the big question, like, am I okay with God? Am I really all right? Like, one of these days, in light of everything that I have done and have left undone, am I going to be okay with God? Like, am I really in that moment? What's God going to think of me in that moment? Is that going to go well in that moment? See, those are all justification questions. And our problem, this is the human problem. We take what is a massive question, the justification questions, and we try to answer those with shallow things. So here's what we try to do. We're asking the question, do I measure up? That it's a justification question. And here's what we start trying to do with that. We start trying to shove in shallow things to try to fill that and to try to do that. So we'll take our work. And work is no longer work for us. It's the way that we're justifying ourselves. It's the, it's the way that we are trying to prove that our existence is valid. That we're okay and we should be here. So work is no longer work. It's the way we're proving our existence. Or let's take marriage. This is what happens for a lot of us. That marriage is no longer marriage, whether we're in it or we want it. It's no longer marriage. It's the way that we're going to make us okay with us. So marriage is the way that we are proving our existence. And our, that it's valid that we're actually here for a reason and it's okay that we're here. Or take parenting. Parenting for so many people becomes the means by which they are trying to prove themselves. My kid's behavior and the reason I respond like a maniac to it has nothing to do with God, has nothing to do with like, they're, they're like, let's correct them and grow them up in the knowledge of it. It has everything to do, my crazy behavior in this moment to their crazy behavior has everything to do with I'm trying to prove my existence by their good behavior, by my parent, by, you know, by my parenting. See, this is what happens to all of us. That if we're not careful, we're going to take this massive justification question and we're going to try to answer it with shallow things. And when you start trying to answer it with shallow things, things that can't answer it, it ruins everything. It'll ruin your marriage. It'll ruin your parenting. It will ruin your work. It'll ruin all of that. Now think about all the things that this produces in us. 
big justification questions that we're all asking, trying to shove little answers into it. It makes us really insecure. See, if you're dealing with insecurity in the room right now, here's what you need to know. That is a justification issue. You are looking to fickle things to justify your existence. And so I'll just personally apply this to me. It is really easy for me before a sermon, during a sermon, or after a sermon to feel really good or really cruddy. It, it can produce a lot of insecurity in me. Now, why is that? It's because a sermon, preaching, is often one of the many ways I try to prove that I'm an okay guy, that, that I'm really all right, that I'm okay here. And listen, when you do that, I mean, the thing about preaching is like, some of you are going to love this morning, and some of you are going to be like, that was terrible. What was that guy thinking? You know, it's just a really fickle savior. It can't satisfy that deep longing for justification and acceptance and welcome and, and being okay. It just can't do that. Think about how it produces anger in a lot of us. It produces this low-grade, steady, under-the-surface, just kind of upset at everyone and everything, blame-shifting, finger-pointing. It produces all of that. I, the next time you get into an argument with your husband, wife, friend, roommate, you just name the person. The next time you get into an argument, at some point in the argument, just ask yourself the question, why is it that I have to be right right now? Why is it that I just can't let this go? I cannot leave this conversation with them thinking they're right and, and them thinking I'm wrong. I cannot do that. Why is that? It's because in that moment, being right is the way we are justifying our existence. See, that is a justification issue. It leads to finger pointing. It leads to all sort of criticism. It leads to all of that, that stuff. See, all of that is justification issues. And what Paul is showing us here is the only remedy big enough for that question is justification that we find by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the only remedy to that massive question that we're all carrying around is in Jesus, his perfect life, death, and resurrection, we find the welcome and acceptance that we want. I mean, th this is what justification is saying. Paul is saying in this passage, here's the deal Jesus is coming to you and wanting to make with you. The deal goes like this. I will take all of your sin on me. I will give you all of my righteousness. Everything that I am, you can now be. Everything that you are, all of your ugliness and nastiness, I'll take upon myself. Now, now why will I do that? I'll do that so you can be fully accepted and loved by God. So you can be fully known. Like God can know the deepest, darkest parts of you and yet at the same time say to you, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're mine. I, don't, I, I want you in my family. This is justification. This is what Paul's showing us here. That big justification, those questions that we're asking, they only find their remedy in the person and work of Jesus. It's the only thing that will free us to allow work to just be work. Parenting to just be parenting, marriage to just be marriage, or whatever other way you're trying to justify your existence, it will just allow it to be what it is and not the way you're trying to prove that you're okay in the universe. This is justification by faith. This is our gospel doctrine that we are accepted by God. We are rejoiced in by God. We are welcomed by God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's your doctrine. Now, let's look at verse 11, and this is gospel culture. Gospel culture. Verse 11 says this. But when Cephas came to Antioch. Okay, so let's just take a quick moment there to work through that. Cephas is Peter. Antioch, we need to get some historical bearings about where the church in Antioch is, what it's doing here. So at this point in just Christian history, there were really two main kind of centers of power in church world. You had one in Jerusalem and you had one in, uh, in Antioch. Jerusalem was made up of primarily Jewish Christians. In Antioch, it was made up of primarily Gentile Christians. In Antioch, the gospel started in Jerusalem. It went to Antioch into these Jewish people. And, and Antioch was kind of a forward-sending, you know, gospel-advancing sort of a church. So this is how the flow of Christian history goes. It starts in Jerusalem. There's the gospel there. It spreads into Antioch. There's the gospel there. And now it spreads into Europe and the rest of the world and eventually makes its way over to the Americas. So now just hear this, though. What is happening in this moment in Antioch is really important. If this moment doesn't go down, there is a great chance that all of that gets derailed. 
Like you are riding the wave that started in Antioch. You're on that wave by being a Christian in America. And apart from this moment, in this chapter, that might never have happened. So, so here we go. But when Cephas came to Antioch, here's what happened. Paul, he's saying, I, Paul, I opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. John Stott calls this one of the most tense and dramatic scenes in the New Testament. You have apostle, super apostle, and super apostle, and they are going mano y mano in the ring right now. They're squaring off and going at it. So I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he, talking about Peter, Peter drew back and separated himself from these Gentiles, fearing the, the, the Jewish people, the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Okay, now let's linger on this for a moment and try to see what's going on here. So Antioch is primarily Gentiles. And that's where Paul, his ministry is primarily to Gentiles. Peter spends most of his time in Jerusalem. His ministry is primarily directed towards Jewish people. P uh, Peter, he decides, I'm going to take a stroll down to Antioch to see how this thing is going down there. He gets down there and he goes crazy. He, like all of his Jewish kind of you know, strappings on him. He just lets them all off and he is enjoying his newfound freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is realizing, I don't have to eat kosher food all the time. I can enjoy a ham sandwich with my Gentile brothers and that can be okay because Jesus has fulfilled all of these Old Testament laws. So Peter, he, he doesn't have to eat the ham sandwich, but he can eat the ham sandwich. It would have been perfectly fine for him to look at the Gentiles believers and just say, man, I'm going to keep to these kosher laws. I'm going to keep to these, these Old Testament laws. I just like them. He could have said that and it would have been just fine. But, but so he comes in and he didn't say that. He said, man, I'm in on this. Where's the menu with the ham and let me have some. He is all in. So he's eating with his Gentile brothers. He's doing all of that. But then all of a sudden, some of his peers from Jerusalem, some of his Jewish peers, they come down. And all of a sudden, when they get there, fear of man just grips Peter. He all of a sudden starts distancing himself from his Gentile brothers. They call for lunch. He does, he's not available. He's got other appointments. They email him. He doesn't respond back. When, when he looks at the menu, he takes ham off the menu all of a sudden when these guys show up in town. Did you see what's happening? Like, before they got there, he's... He's enjoying freedom. But when they got there, he, man, he is back into kosher laws, hams off the menu, lobster no more. We're back into Jewish world. Okay? Now, Paul two times looked at this and says, or three times, he looked at it and says, this is, you're acting hypocritically. This is not right, Peter. It's not right that you're doing this. You're, you're giving the impression of something that's not true here, Peter. This is not right. And that hypocrisy, um, he goes on, Paul goes on to explain, that hypocrisy began to infect and affect all these Jewish believers in Antioch. So now all of them are being swept away by it. And then it even gets to Barnabas. And when you read Barnabas, you should be thinking, surely not Barnabas. I mean, Barnabas is like, his name means encouragement. Barnabas is one of those guys that you just, you leave his presence and you just feel better about everything in life. That's Barnabas. But even Barnabas gets swept away in this hypocrisy. Now, this is a big deal to Paul. This is not something that Paul can just let go. This is not something that Paul can, can just kind of sweep under the rug. Look at verse 14. And this is why. There's something about the gospel that is at stake with how Peter is operating, with what Peter is doing. So Paul says this, but when I saw that their conduct, Peter, now all of these Jewish brothers, now all, even Barnabas, all of, all of these guys, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with, you might just underline that, in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? There is something in this moment that, that Paul felt was so sacred that he could not let it go. So let's just kind of think about what's happening here. See, Peter, he, doctrinally, he was solid. Peter had right doctrine. Doctrine, he was holding. It was in a good, firm hand. He believed in justification, 
by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He believed that. In verse 15 and 16, when it's that we is talking about Paul and Peter along with everyone else, but, but Peter's surely in that. He confessionally believed the right doctrine. He had the doctrine down. If you go back to Acts um, chapter 10, Peter is up on a house praying. And while he's praying, a vision, this vision kind of falls into a trance. He's got this vision from God. And this is what the vision from God was. It was this sheet that came down out of heaven, and all of these unclean animals are in the sheet and in this little net type thing. And God says to Peter, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And every hunter said amen to that, right? Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter looks back at God and says, but God, I'm a Jewish man. There is no, that's, none of those animals are kosher. None of those fit within the Old Testament laws. I can't eat any of those things. God, I'm, there's no way I'm doing that. And God looks back at Peter and three times says, no, Peter, you're going to eat it. D don't call a thing common what I've called now clean. D don't do that. We're, we're all good now. All of that's been fulfilled. It's now justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Peter knew that. He left that house that day knowing that is how we are justified by, you know, with God. It is grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. We need nothing else. He's got the right doctrine, but here's the problem in Galatians 2. He does not have the culture. He is missing a gospel culture. A gospel culture is void in this moment. So think about what's happening here. With Peter's lips, he would... He would proudly and boldly and gratefully declare justification is by grace alone through faith alone. You come in with the empty hands of faith. It's nothing else. You come with all of your mess and all of your junk. In Christ alone, you are justified. Confessionally, he knew that. He believed that. He was preaching that for crying out loud. But in this moment, his life was saying something different. His life was saying justification equals by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus you need to keep these Jewish laws, plus this over here. And when you get this over here, then I'll accept you and then God will accept you. Do you see what's happening here? See, what, what, what you know, Peter confessionally, he is spot on, but what Peter is saying with his life is trumping his doctrine. Culture is, is bigger in this moment than the doctrine is in the church in Antioch. Now, this was such a big deal to Paul. Paul had to confront this, and here's why. Paul knew this. This will be on the screen for you. This is why Paul could not let this go. This is a gospel issue in this moment. These cultural things are important. They're sacred. Paul knew this, that right doctrine plus a wrong culture equals doctrinal denial. Now hear that. In this moment, Paul is showing us this. This is why he's confronting this. That right doctrine plus a wrong culture equals doctrinal denial. Maybe we could say it this way. It is possible to unsay with our culture what we are saying with our doctrine. Let me say it one more time. It is, this is what Peter is doing, by the way. It is possible to unsay with our culture what we are saying with our doctrine. See, in Antioch in this moment, the doctrine is trumping, or the culture is trumping the doctrine. Peter knows it's justification by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, but his culture is saying, you need that plus this, and until you get this, you're not gonna be okay with God or anyone else. See, that's the culture, and that culture is speaking more loudly than the doctrine is in the church in Antioch in this moment. So, you know, I think it's important for us to have a sense of this. As a church family, it's not enough for us just to ask, are we holding the correct doctrine? That is vitally important. We can never let go of that. If we don't get this right, nothing else will go right. But it's not enough to just ask, are we holding gospel doctrine? We've also got to ask, are we portraying a gospel culture? Do we have both? Do we have a gospel doctrine and the culture? Are both of those here? Are both of those alive? Are both of those present? We need both of those. Listen to how Ray Ortland goes on to describe this. He says, gospel culture, now this, this phrase, by the way, struck me as a little bit odd when I first read it, but I actually agree with it. He said, gospel culture 
is just as sacred as gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine here, gospel culture here, he's saying that you can't separate these two things. They're both sacred. They're both equally sacred. We've got to have them both. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Gospel culture is just as sacred as gospel doctrine, and gospel culture must be carefully nurtured and preserved in our churches. Paul fought for it. See, what he is fighting for right now is not gospel doctrine. It's the gospel culture that is unsaying the gospel doctrine. It's important enough for Paul that he actually fought for it because the doctrine of salvation by grace cannot be preserved with integrity if it is surrounded by a culture of salvation by self. See, if what, if what we're saying over here is, no, it's, it's justification by grace through faith in Christ, but over here with our culture, we're saying, but no, it's actually more than that. Now you've got to do these things, and then you're going to be okay with God. It unsays what we're saying over there to preserve the truth of the gospel. And by the way, this is what Paul's doing. If you look at uh, Galatians 2, verse 5, this is, what he's, this is what he's about in this chapter. This was another episode where he's saying, man, I am trying to preserve the truth of the gospel. And if we want the truth of the gospel preserved for our world to see and to celebrate in, it requires us to be faithful both to doctrine, gospel doctrine, and to be faithful to a gospel culture. It's both of those two things. This is why Paul in verse 14, look at verse 14 again. When he's confronting Peter, this is what he's saying to them. That your conduct, your culture, here's the problem with your culture. It is out of step with the gospel. See, the gospel is not just a place we stand. It is that. This is the place we stand and receive the mercy and grace of God to save us. So it is that. It is a place that we stand, but it's also a path we get to walk on. And in our life, as we are walking down this gospel path, we can live in such a way where we fall off of that path, where we get out of alignment with the good news of Jesus. That is possible to do. See, this is the culture. The doctrine is you are rebels saved by grace, but it is possible somewhere along the way as we're walking down the path of this, of this doctrine to fall off of that, to get out of alignment, out of step with it. And this is what Peter is, or Paul is confronting, that when you're out of step, when your culture is out of step with the doctrine that you hold so dear, even though you hold the doctrine so dear, you're still denying the doctrine that we've got to have right Doctrine plus right culture, and that's how we preserve gospel. That's how we do it. Now, let, let's just tie a bow on this. That it is a lot harder to, to get and hold a gospel culture. It's a lot harder to do that than it is to get and hold gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine is hard. It's hard to believe. It's such good news that it actually lands on our ears as unbelievable. There's no way that could be true. So it is hard, but gospel doctrine is much easier to make clear. You can post it on a website, get a great statement of faith, and you can make it clear that way. It's a lot harder to get over on this side of the equation and make sure your culture is reflecting your doctrine. See, to make sure our culture reflects our doctrine actually means there's gonna have to be a million little deaths to self. See, if we want our culture to reflect and adorn and add beauty to this beautiful message over here, it means that we're going to have to walk in humility. We're going to have to walk in honesty. We're going to have to walk in confession of sin and repentance. We're going to have to do all of those things. It's going to mean along the way, if we want our culture to reflect our doctrine, it's going to mean that we're going to have to adjust along the way. We're going to have to make space for people who do not think like us and look like us. It means all of those things. It means that we're actually going to have to die to ourselves and actually lose so others can win. See, it means all of that, and that is hard to do, but this is gospel culture. And what we're going for, we want both the beauty of a gospel doctrine, and we never want to let go of that, but we want our culture to adorn and to add beauty and to demonstrate that that gospel doctrine really gets down and satisfies the deepest longings of your heart. We want a church family who really is, is demonstrating before the world a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like, don't we? Amen. That's what we want. Ha has a city ever had a church in it where the city just thought there's too much humility there? There's just too much. Those people need to get more prideful. 
Has a city ever looked at a church and said that those people, they're just too gracious. There's just too much grace going on. They've never said that. They've never looked at a church and said there's too much mercy there. There's too much poor in spirit there. They've never said that. There's never been a culture, there's never been a city, there's never been a place that's had too much gospel culture, that's had too much honesty, that's had too much grace, too much humility. And this is what we're striving for, is to have that gospel doctrine with that gospel culture and allow God to just blow up our area in light of that. Now, let me just kind of summarize and we'll land the plane on this. Let me just give you my hopes for kind of the next few weeks for us. Um, my, my hope for us, one, is that we would first get to take a step back and recognize, listen to this, recognize and rejoice in we have a gospel culture. God has given that to us. Like, we, we actually have that. So if you were here last week, you got to experience baptisms with us. And I don't know how many people have told me over the last week, man, that was the best service I've ever set in in my life. And I would agree. I think it was the best service I've ever set in in my life. And I loved so much of what I saw there. We got to celebrate gospel doctrine and gospel culture on display. So think about Marcus's story. Marcus's story, when he's talking about his past, he did not leave it in vague details where you would have to figure it out. Marcus came out and said, this is my past. I've done drugs. I've dealt drugs. I've been in a gang. I've fornicated. I've done it all. And God has saved me. That's gospel doctrine. But hear this. Think about, I mean, is there anywhere else in the world where people get up in front of everyone else and say, let me air my dirty laundry for you? No other place does that. Now think about for Marcus to be able to get up and say that last week, think about what he's got to feel in this room. He's got to feel that when I say things that are shameful to me, that this is going to be a place that's going to be safe to do that in. That's gospel culture. That when people are being honest, it is a safe place for them to grow and to celebrate grace and to make progress. It's a safe place for that to happen. Or, or the other story that we heard, one of the other stories. We heard the story of not just that I have struggled with sin in my past, but no, it was more specific. It was when I was 13, I pursued a lesbian relationship. That I, I have felt this in me and I have pursued that. It wasn't just vague. Now when I heard that the other day, you know what I was thinking? Dude, she's got so much courage right now. I love that moment. See, it's, it's her saying that, man, this is who I am, and God has redeemed that. So it's gospel doctrine that God actually redeems things. But it's also a culture for her to be able to, to express something that is very private, personal, deep, even shameful. For her to be able to express that in a room like this and to really believe that I can do that and this is a safe place for that that I'm not gonna be re-crucified because Jesus was already crucified for it. For her to actually believe that, that is a gospel culture. I mean, we get to celebrate that. We get to enjoy that. God is doing that at Stonegate. I told our home group leaders this last weekend, um, I, I just made this comment that my favorite part of the week is coming to Stonegate on Sunday morning. It's my favorite few hours of the week, and here's why. Because we've got a gospel culture that I need. It is like putting an oxygen mask over my face every week when I come here. Man, I appreciate that. I need that. You need that. We need that. And the great news that we have right now is that God is actually gifting us these things. So I, I want us to make sure that we celebrate and recognize that. And at the same time, I want us to know that a gospel culture is both precious and very precarious. That it can slip through your fingers that fast. Think about Peter on this morning when all this confrontation went down. Peter did not wake up that morning saying, you know what I want to do today? I want to defame the gospel with my life. I want to I live today in such a way where I unsay everything that I hold dear. He didn't say that, did he? But you know what he did that day was exactly that. He lived on that day in such a way where it unsaid everything that he wanted to say with his lips. And that is very easy for churches to do that. It's very easy for us to hold this doctrine so dear and then our culture run directly against the grain of that doctrine. So, and lastly, and we're done here. If we're ever going to make it down the road of God just continuing to pour out more and more grace on us in developing a gospel culture, let's just be clear in where that starts. That starts in your heart and that starts in my heart. 
There's no shortcuts to a great gospel culture. No shortcuts. It means that grace, listen to this, actually has to be real in the deepest places of your heart. That grace actually has to get down all the way down there. Now, this is what Paul shows us in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I want to emphasize the last phrase of this verse, Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, if we're going to create a gospel doc, our culture, by the way, we're going to have to have a million little deaths like that. It's no longer I, but it is Christ who lives in me right now in this moment as parts of me are being put to death. The life I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And this last phrase, if we're ever going to get a gospel culture, this last phrase has to mean something to you, personally to you. When Paul says this, this Son of God who loved me, not, not just someone else out there, not all those other people, but this Son of God, God the Father, by sending his Son, Jesus, God the Son, who loved me and gave himself for not just everyone else, not all of those people in all of those places, but you personally, in particular, you, you who loved me and gave himself for me. You're going to have to feel the love of God on that sort of a deep and personal level. You're going to have to feel the mercy of God on that sort of deep and personal level. You're going to have to feel the forgiveness of God, the grace of God on that sort of a deep and personal level. And it's when that begins to happen in a church, when that gospel doctrine just begins to explode in us, that it seeps out to everyone else around us creating the gospel culture that we so badly want. Martin Luther, friend of the gospel, reformer, said it this way. Think carefully who this son of God is, how glorious he is, how mighty he is. What is heaven and earth in comparison with him? The law did not love me or give itself to me. Indeed, the law accuses me. It terrifies me. It drives me to despair. But now I have someone in Jesus who has set me free from the terrors of the law of sin and death, and has brought me to freedom, the righteousness of God and eternal life. He is the Son of God, to whom be praise and glory forever. And read these words. Read it carefully with great emphasis. Read these words. He loved me, me, of all people, me. He loved me and gave himself for me. Read those words with great emphasis. With a firm faith, you may engrave this me on your heart. For all of those who have come to God with the empty hands of faith, you can engrave that me on your heart and apply it to yourself, not doubting that you are among those to whom this me belong. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.